Hello, and welcome to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. My guest today is Ed Piscor. He is the writer and artist on X-Men Grand Design, and the latest arc of that series coming out, X-Men Grand Design Second Genesis. He's also the artist and writer of Hip Hop Family Tree, and both of those series were released as giant-sized treasury editions. You know those ones that Marvel put out back in the 70s? Well, ultimately, all of Ed's X-Men books are going to be collected as three treasury-sized editions, and they will span the classic Chris Claremont years of the X-Men series. So if you're a fan of the X-Men or you're a lapsed fan of the X-Men, this is a great way to get caught up on X-Men history. Ed is taking his own approach with this series. He's taking things that have been retconned into X-Men history and combining it into the narrative so that it flows from beginning to end, all as one cohesive whole. And Ed's doing it in his own very unique, independent comic style. Not only do we talk about Ed's work on the X-Men, but we also talk about the reprinted edition of X-Men number one by Stanley and Jack Kirby that was in the first treasury-sized volume of X-Men Grand Design, and why Ed felt it was necessary to recolor Jack Kirby's work himself. And how does he feel about those reprinted editions of Silver Age comic books that are found in those nice hardback volumes with the shiny white paper? And if Ed could, would he write the X-Men today as an ongoing series? We answer all these questions and more in my interview with Ed Piscor, here now on Creator Talks. Ed, welcome to Creator Talks. Thanks for having me, man. Let's talk comics, X-Men comics. Now, I'm no expert. I am an X-Men fan, but... You know, I haven't read them in a long time, and I'll explain that to you, but of all the superhero comics, I know you're a fan of the X-Men, of course. I mean, you know, you're working on Grand Design. What was the appeal of the X-Men for you? X-Men comics were pretty much the only constant thing I had in my life during the early part of my life. Uh, It was like X-Men comics and Nintendo were the things that I could always rely on. My sort of earliest memories of just looking through books and reading, I had X-Men comics and, you know, had a subscription when I was a kid. It's my favorite Marvel comic. It helped kind of create the habit of me becoming a comics reader in general. There will always be a a soft spot in my heart for uh, the Chris Claremont X-Men. You know, when he went away, I went away, but it was perfect because I was about 12 years old. And it was time to investigate comics that appealed to my sensibilities more than, you know, your journeyman monthly Marvel DC comic. What appeals to me about it, I can't quite explain it. I think a lot of me doing this comic is kind of like my investigation about, you know, what is it that I like most about the X-Men? I'm just kind of trying to figure that out for myself. You were very lucky, like I was, that you grew up when you could read the current run through your subscription, plus you could read the classic issues. And I kind of grew up in a period like that. There were not trades yet, and I had books like Marvel's Greatest Comics that reprinted FF. I looked forward to those as much as the monthly comic. Now, what was the reprint that you were reading at the time, at the same time, as the current book. Classic X-Men, the comic, was coming out in tandem with the regular monthly series. And it was perfect because those those old John Byrne, Chris Claremont issues are prohibitively expensive. There was no way that I would even think about, you know, saving enough allowance to buy 
you know, issue 137 or something like that. That wasn't a thought in my mind. So the concession that you would make would be to check out classic X-Men. And I still remember the the first issue of that I got was uh, was the one that had Arcade on the cover. I think it reprinted issue like 120, 121, some, somewhere around there, where Arcade uh, kidnaps the X-Men and puts them inside of a pinball machine. That made me become a, like a John Byrne fan. And just getting a hold of those classic X-Men issues, it really provided this amazing window into like another world. It was like, I don't remember Cyclops just having this blue suit. So then when you see that on the cover, it's like, well, well now I need to know how he got that blue suit. I was just a kid and, and it, was, it was a geeky rabbit hole that I fell into. But uh, I was lucky enough to have that the animated series come on pretty soon after I became you know, regular comics reader. So all the kids in school were on board with X-Men too. Nobody made me feel bad about digging deeper and deeper into X-Men and all that stuff. Now, did you eventually go out and start buying the original back issues when you could afford to do so? No, never. Like, like I'm not that kind of guy. Like, I think the most I ever spent on a single issue of a comic might be like uh, eight bucks or something like that. And I only did that one or two times. I'm not that kind of guy. Like, I have 20,000, 30,000 comics in this house, but they're all beat to hell and they're well-read and all that kind of thing, man. But, I have I mean, I've read all those old comics a thousand times, and I have them in different forms. Like, I have the entire run of Classic X-Men, but then I have all the essentials, and then I have these things digitally. So I have many formats of it, but I don't uh, don't have the original issues at all. I do collect comics and read them, and I would get, and I've said this before on the show, but I would get the reprint issues, the ones yeah. from the early 70s from my dad, he brought them home when I would be sick in bed. That's the first X-Men I saw. But later on, I bought them off the spinner rack, and they're all beat to hell. I mean, <laughs> I doubt they're worth much of anything. And I certainly can't go back out and buy those again uh, just, <laughs> just for collecting purposes. But, yeah, I mean, I read all those John Byrne ones, and they were great. And that's about when I fell off was when John Byrne left the book. That's when I stopped. And it wasn't the X-Men. It was like I stopped everything for a while at that point. But do you have a favorite X-Men and X-Men villain? Uh, not really. Like, I, I, what I like about X-Men is, like, the overall concept and idea. So I didn't really get into this to draw Wolverine specifically or anything like that. Though I will say it is pretty fun drawing these characters. Uh, there's not one that's more fun than any other in particular. But what I did realize when beginning this comic is that if you're at home and you're sitting around and you, and you draw Wolverine or, or Storm or somebody... It's not really that character. Like, you didn't fully draw them yet until you apply the color. That was the astonishing thing. Like, the color is really what makes these characters the kind of icons that they are. Yeah, you could sit down and you could draw Spider-Man in pen and ink, but there's something inside your brain that changes whenever you apply the red and blue on the outfit, and then just that drawing becomes Spider-Man. So, so that's, like, the fun thing for me is every page I'm sitting around, I'm drawing, and it's like, okay, yeah, this is Wolverine, yeah, this is Colossus. But when I then scan the work into the computer and start to apply the color, that's when it really takes shape. And that's something I, that I never thought about going into this project. Now, if I wanted to go back and read some of the Claremont X-Men, what would be a good issue for me to pick up? Something that would exemplify the work that he did after John Byrne left. That's the reason why I'm making this comic, to kind of answer that question specifically, because people in my life, my friends, 
girlfriends, family, whatever. Like they know they know that I like X Men. They know that I always liked X Men. And when they try to kind of bond or, or relate with me in some way, they'll ask me that question: "What's the issue that I should read?" And there's no good answer. Um, and th- and that is why I'm making this comic because I'm trying to highlight all the stuff that makes them great because there's just so much baggage that comes with each issue that you will simply be lost if you just jump in like I was when I was a kid. Now with a certain kind of person, a naturally curious person, somebody who, who likes to investigate things, that is fine for that. Like that could even be inspiring to them. It gets their ears going and then they have to dig for more issues, blah, blah, blah. The average person is not this way. The average person, you know, wants to kick on Netflix watch a TV show, enjoy it, live their life. So for that kind of person, there isn't a good comic in the run for me to just point you to. That is why I'm making X-Men Grand Design. And that's a Herculean task. Like you said, there's a huge history. It's not, it's hard to pick out just one because they are not standalone issues at that point, especially during the Claremont era. You know, you have to go through and read the whole run to get the feel of subplots running throughout the books. So yeah, it's just great that you've gone through. I mean, this must have taken you a lot of preparation just to get the first arc of this series out because you're planning on making a trilogy, yes? Yeah, trilogy of trade paperbacks. uh, It's going to be six issues total. Just the drawing of these things takes six months apiece. You know, you pose the question in the kind of a past tense, but I'm still deep in it. You know, I have about a year's worth of work steady work ahead of me so it so i'm barely uh past the point of no return so to speak you know i'm on page six of uh issue five um but it's all written what i'm basically illustrating is a thought exercise that i've always kind of had about the x-men and and because i am a fan as much as anybody likes the x-men i am in a position where i can answer those questions about like if i had control of the x-men i would do this and i'm doing that so there will be people who like it there will be people who don't but whatever like i'm having fun i'm doing my thing it does have a certain appeal to me because even though your artwork is very different from what you would normally see in Marvel, much more of an indie look, it really appeals to me and it reads so well because you're covering so much, but it's I have a hard time putting it down. It's a wonderful gift to have a book like this because it does encapsulate so much of the history so well and you're even going back. And pulling in the rectons that have gone that throughout the years where you were actually explaining things that are later revealed in the series later on, like the Phoenix, when they brought her back, you kind of work all that into the story. The idea for Grand Design is to take all these issues and to just try to make a 240-page story, 240-page chronicle about these characters and try to use as much of the existing source material as possible. Now, my story is 240 pages, and I'm using about 8,000 pages worth of material. So, like, if there's a fanboy out there crying about why I made a concession here or there, uh, that's why. You know what I mean? I'm actually astonished that people even ask the question because it's so clear to me. Like, you know, it's 8,000 pages of stuff. So when I'm putting together the kind of bullet points about how the story is going to flow... You have the early Stanley Jack Kirby issues, Werner Roth, those guys. Those issues are rife with extraterrestrial villainy. And it's just a very like one and done monster of the month kind of comic. So I wanted to just try to like have those characters make a little bit more sense in, in the greater canon or whatever. And the X-Men abruptly go into outer space and fight the Shi'ar, like all, like all that stuff in the Claremont run. So why not build that? 
in early. And, and the Phoenix is one of the most important concepts or storylines that were introduced in, into the X-Men. So why not build it in a little bit earlier? This is just a thought exercise that, that I've kind of always had. That's what it's resulting in. Um, I don't know if you saw the trade paperback for the first grand design, but I included this feature. It was about five pages and it was just all of my juvenilia drawings and stuff like that from when I was a boy. In fact, I was looking through scrapbooks and found a photograph of myself and my cousin, and we're sitting in front of a big cathode ray tube console television playing the um, X-Men NES game when we were like six years old. When I tell people that this is a project that's been about 30 years in the making, I'm, I'm really not lying. It's not hyperbole. No, I have that book right in front of me. <laughs> and uh, for people that haven't seen it, and it's kind of hard to miss, the issues that come out are standard size, but you do this really cool thing like you did with Hip Hop Family Tree where you make the pages look old, but this treasury size edition version is gorgeous. I love these because I used to buy the treasury-sized Marvel comics uh, when they would come out in the newsstand or in the drugstore and the bookstore. And this kind of replicates that feel. It's really, really cool. And you've even, in that first edition, the first book, you've even reprinted the X-Men. Did you not color that? Yeah, I recolored it. Amongst my peers and readers who have a more creative eye um, and think beyond just like the simple content of the story, all I hear is complaints about what these companies do with the reprint color on the old Kirby comics and stuff. Rather than complain, like I decided, well, let me just try to make Kirby Kirby again with in terms of the color. Like his his work was built for the old four color process. If you go dig through back issue bins and you get an old yellowed copy of Forever People or something like that, uh, when you look at the aged paper with the poppy color, it all really blends well and is married. It's in the same sort of tradition as like fine art painting, where there will be a monochromatic earth tone sort of painting underneath the color to just make sure that all the colors are pulled together and work as a unit. And that is the opposite of what the standard Kirby reprints look like. Like all the colors are really divorced from one another. It looks like uh, you're staring into a, like a bowl of candy or something. It just, every color screams at you and it's on bright white paper, which was never the case. You know, even when those comics were brand new, the newsprint that those things were printed on was still kind of gray. And so basically what I'm telling you is that I hate all of uh, the Kirby reprints for the most part. So given this opportunity to reprint X-Men 1, um, I wanted to make the best Kirby color reprint that I possibly can. And, and I think that my recoloring of X-Men 1 stands up against any of the other publishers or even, you know, any of the other Marvel stuff that they've reprinted from Kirby. I could not agree more. I agree with you 1,000%. It's nice that they do have the collected editions, hardbacks, but I just, I don't really gravitate towards those because of the color. It just doesn't look right for the book. The older paper, anyway, would even absorb the color differently so that it wasn't so reflective and so bright. And I just love that kind of subtle coloring. And do you think you could ever do more books like this where you take the old comics, especially X-Men, and recolor them? Because it looks great. I would love to. It's really fun. And just for my own cartooning education, staring at Jack Kirby at that molecular level added to my work. Like, I learned things while I was coloring his comics. I almost feel like it's my duty because I do think that so many reprints, like, really suck, like terribly bad like there's a reason why these things are never up for 
like Eisner nominations even. You know what I'm saying? Like it's always like Fantagraphics get like the reprint awards or whatever because they kind of get the subtlety of how the color should look. And with the big two, it's like they have this, they have the, they're sitting on this gold mine, but they they just don't even kind of like understand or respect what it is they're, they're sitting on. You know, like the, it's administrators who are warehousing this stuff, but they really need a good creative eye to make it work. You know, that's the beauty of like what Chip Kid does. And, you know, when Rich Tomasso would recolor the um, Carl Barks books for Fantagraphics, like if you look close, he's uh, adding a little bit of fuzz, a little bit of noise to just the paper color so that it is like a more subtle, congruent unit as a whole. Now, let me ask you specifically about this Marvel Treasury Edition format. And you also use this for Hip Hop Family Tree. What made you decide to do that? Because I love it. Because like I said, I remember these. And it just kind of struck an emotional chord with me. And I immediately had an attachment to the book. Why did you choose that particular format? Well, I did use it for Hip Hop Family Tree for a specific reason. um, And it was because of the time period I was telling my story those Treasury Edition comics were coming out around like the late 70s, very early 80s when hip hop was new. Um, so that's why I used it initially. Now, those books became wild hits. And I proved to comic shops, I proved to the publishers that you could sell a big ass book. There were reservations. Like whenever I was making the Hip Hop Family Tree comic initially, all the publishers came to me and were, were uh, interested in publishing the thing. And if you have five publishers courting you, then you could start to make some demands. And I wanted the thing to be a treasury edition comic on the most newsprinty paper possible. And Fantagraphics was the publisher who said yes to everything I asked. We proved that it could be a success. So Marvel is very happy to kind of piggyback on that. And that was kind of the requirement because I frankly uh, am used to drawing for this format now. So I won't doubt that perhaps the rest of my body of work might be at this format. You know what I'm saying? Like if I go off after this and do something for Image, the top masthead on the cover might say Image Treasury Edition. You know, I think it'll be kind of funny because like the hip hop books say Fantagraphics Treasury Edition. The X-Men books say Marvel Treasury Edition. So maybe like everywhere I go, you know, whatever publisher slash Treasury Edition the thing will read because I do like that format a lot. Oh, that's great. And Marvel, if you're listening, let Ed recolor the old Lee and Kirby's and put it in this format, the treasury edition. That way it's not competing with the other books that are the bookshelf type that are the hardbacks. But fans like me are going to certainly love books like this. And you know, one of the things sometimes fans complain about it, and it is what it is, retconning books. Done well. I like it. Like there was that uh, X-Men in the early years, and I thought that was a wonderful way to fill in the gap between when X-Men wanted to reprint and then it came back as the all-new X-Men. You know, eventually, they brought back Jean Grey in the comics. You know, the Phoenix came back and John Byrne kind of retconned that. How do you feel about retconning and should they have brought back the Phoenix? As a fan, I'm asking you now. I don't think in those terms whatsoever. I kind of, how do I explain this in like a nice way? Like, all that I care about in comics is what the creative person does. So... I am not beholden to continuity like a Wednesday warrior would be or whatever. So I, I never used the word. I, I Frankly, I never even heard it until I started making my comic. Because like, that's just not the circles that I run with. I'm not reading like forums and shit like that. 
I advocate hire the cartoonists, let them tell their story, and it is what it is. Like, so do whatever you want. I don't care about that stuff at all. I did check out X-Men the early years, and I just simply didn't like it for just what it was. I really like meticulous John Byrne, and that just wasn't as rigorous as, as he's done. It, you know, he sort of created almost like a typecasting in my mind of like what great John Byrne could be. And like anything else is just, it just wasn't what I wanted. I see. So like the X-Men books that he did and like his FF early on is more of what you're thinking of John Byrne work is like. Yeah, sure. That's my favorite stuff for sure. But obviously like the X-Men um, supersedes just because, you know, like Fantastic Four is dope, but you get, you would get a sense that there's going to be like a big payoff or something. There's really never was in Fantastic Four kind of period. It's always been just kind of a meandering thing. The payoffs were, were just never, never monumental or anything like that. Like, like I'd like to see somebody really, really make the great Fantastic Four comic. But as it stands right now, we just have the Galactus trilogy. And, you know, that that isn't isn't perfect. With this trilogy that you're working on of the X-Men, do you plan on finishing right where Claremont left the book? It's going to shake out that it's going to happen a little bit before where he left the book because, you know, he was building to this thing called the Muera Island Saga and Fabian Nicieze, like, finished that up. It didn't go anywhere. And the work that I would have to do to make that satisfying is more than I'm willing to do. I found a real perfect way to end the story uh, a little bit before that. But I also figured out a way to make it fit into the greater canon, if you so choose to believe it. I have to be cryptic about it right now, just because the benefit of being a singular cartoonist making the comic is that I can change things on the fly. So the way it's written right now, it, it can fit in really cozy, but perhaps throughout this year, I'll find a better way and I will, you know, ex explore that if I think it's better. So um, I kind of can't wait for people to see X-Men Grand Design when, when it's totally wrapped up in a bun. There are no talks with Marvel about collecting them all in one or anything like that. But I don't doubt that, you know, they probably will at some point. And just to see, like, those 240 rigorous pages in one book, there's just not another Marvel book that looks like that. Now, we've talked about you working on the X-Men of the past. If you had the opportunity and you could do the X-Men today, current, would you do it and where would you take them? I wouldn't do it because I'm just not interested in working within the corporate structure in that way. I'm not a journeyman, like, monthly grinder. You think of me, frankly, and whether this sounds pretentious or not, I, I could give a damn, but think of me more as, like, an author. So I make my book and then it's there for a year and then I'll make another book. Um, I'm not going to destroy my personal life by, you know, making 30 pages a month or something like that. Like, it, that just can never happen. I'm not interested in, like, pitching, um, you know, and trying to convince an editor, like, to accept my story and to give me money. Like, I'm very comfortable just going away, making a book, and then showing it to a publisher and saying, will you publish this or will you not? Ultimately, that's probably where I'm going to end up. Just go back to do my own thing. Um, you know, go into a hole for a year, come out with a book, show it off to the different publishers, which one of you guys are going to give me the best deal, you know, and wash, rinse, repeat for, you know, the rest of my career.
you're a fan of the comics, fan of the cartoons, gaming. How about the movies? Do you have any opinion of those? Do you follow the X-Men movies that have come out so far from Fox? I do. Uh, and, it, and it's I was just thinking about this uh, the other day because I was visiting my dad and he was watching uh, like Justice League. Like I just don't watch any of those movies except the X-Men. And like I don't necessarily think they're good by any means. Like I like the X-Men and I go in and I watch these movies and I have a good time. And by the time I exit the theater, I forgot everything that already happened. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. like it's like I have a good time. But like I just, uh, you know, it's popcorn flicks. I just don't care about it that much. Like let me see. Let me see a big sentinel. Let me see Hugh Jackman rip a bunch of dudes apart with his claws. But I put no cultural equity in into any of that, like whatsoever. It's just kind of dumb fun. You don't obsess over it. You don't worry about it. Do you have a favorite or favorites of the X-Men movies that have been out so far? Not really, but I love the Pride of the X-Men VHS tape cartoon pilot from before the, the animated series that everybody remembers. Like there was that cartoon pilot that must have been very, very hopeful to Marvel in some way because that cartoon is basically what the uh, the X-Men four-player arcade game was based off of because, you know, you had that Dazzler from, from that cartoon and Nightcrawler and Colossus and all them. Uh, so it's like, I love that arcade game. I love that cartoon. Why did they make uh, Wolverine have an Australian accent when the animation was done in Canada? So ostensibly they knew what Canadian people <laughs> sounded like. But they still decided to give him a weird Australian accent. In the 80s, they like never got that right. Because even before that, there was Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends episode, A Firestar is Born, that had the X-Men in like the early 80s as co-stars. And they gave him like the most severe Crocodile Dundee Australian accent. So it's just like, damn, in the 80s, did they really think that Canadian people sounded that way? Like, what was the mindset there? <laughs> I encourage everybody to uh, you know go on YouTube and check those things out because they're quite remarkable. Now, leaving the world of X-Men for a bit, I wanted to just discuss your earlier work, some of your indie work, just so that folks who aren't familiar with it get a chance to hear about it. And that's where eventually you went, was doing more indie comics, and you did work with the great Harvey Picard on books like Our Movie Year, Macedonia, and The Beats, A Graphic History. How did you get in touch and sync up with Harvey Picard back then? There was a documentary that I grew up totally adoring totally obsessing over i know the entire movie verbatim i could recite it here right now but i won't and it's called comic book confidential and they interviewed everybody who basically became my greatest inspirations in terms of becoming a cartoonist so they interviewed kirby they interviewed stan lee they interviewed robert crumb jaime hernandez charles burns they interviewed harvey Picar. And so at a very young age, Harvey was on my radar. And in Walden Books in Century Three Mall, there were very few comic book collections. There was like The Crow, James O'Barr. There wasn't even Watchmen, believe it or not. But there was American Splendor Anthology published by Doubleday that was in the bookstore. So So I grabbed that and totally loved it because... My favorite part of superhero comics, like my part of a Spider-Man comic is the Peter Parker portion. I couldn't care less about like the fight sequences and all that. Um, So American Splendor promised to be, you know, a whole issue of the Peter Parker sequences. When the American Splendor movie came out, almost within a day, you know, I was I was working on comics and I go see the American Splendor flick and I have these American Splendor comics. So I crack them open and I see the letters page, you know, has an address is it his same address now? It's been 15 years, whatever. 
I still I, I mailed my work to that P.O. box and these comics got to him. Now, he didn't get in touch right away, but the artwork did not get sent back either. So I imagine the comics were going to somebody and I was just desperate to become a cartoonist. So ultimately, uh, within two or three of those mailings, he called my house and I was I was living at home. You know, my, my dad knocks on the bedroom and wakes me up and says, oh, yeah, there's some guy named... Uh, Harvey, blah, 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 you know, like totally screw up the name. You know, I call Harvey up and he offers me work, man. So he is responsible for giving birth to my professional career because my peers and many of my contemporaries, they would make comics, you know, in the indie realm and see no rewards, like no financial rewards whatsoever. Or if they did, it was very nominal and not commensurate to the amount of work that they put into the project. But that has has frankly never been my situation. Like Harvey planted the seeds and, and made it possible for me to be a working, functioning cartoonist. Like the money I lived on while making, you know, WYSIWYG was in a great part achieved by working on Harvey Picar projects, man. So that guy's incredibly important to me. And, and we did this, the comics in our movie year. At first it was just a four pager and he liked what I turned in. And then it turned out that he was contractually obligated to make the book a certain length. But when he was corralling all the pages, he had about 25 pages to go. So he churned out this 24, 25 page story uh, over a weekend. And he, he gave me a call and said, Ed, do you want to do a lot of work in a really, really short amount of time? I had like 28 days or something to do this 24, 25 page story. And, you know, I said yes turned it in and he appreciated that I, you know, grinded it out so much that he offered me 155 page book after that and then 120 pager. And that pretty much wrapped up our collaborative uh, relationship at that point. And then I kind of just went off on my own. Well, I hope that your work with the X-Men does wet people's appetites to go and look at some of your indie work too, because that happened with me with a former guest on the show, Dean Haspel who worked on the Fox for Archie and does his own book now, The Red Hook, he is big in indie comics. And I went back and read a lot of his stuff because I like the superhero work. So with you, I definitely want to go back and read some of these books like Our Movie Year and Macedonia and the Beats. After seeing what you've done with the X-Men, I have an interest in those books too, not just because of your style and your storytelling skills, but because I do like those stories that are more of a slice of life, that are more grounded. Um, like you said, most interesting thing about Spider-Man is Peter Parker. That's what makes it so interesting. That's why it appealed to young kids because, ah, they see themselves in Peter Parker. So it's that kind of every man really appeals to me, that kind of story, because it's very down-to-earth and very grounded. And those appeal to me a great deal, too. So I'm definitely going to go back and check those out. I wouldn't uh, have too high of an expectation uh, <laughs> okay. when you go back and uh, look at that <laughs> stuff. That I'm still a knucklehead kid, man. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> we all start somewhere. <laughs> it's true, man. Like, you know, it's there on paper. But uh, just thinking about the person that I was back then, I was such an asshole. Well, we evolve. And that's that'll be neat to see how it's evolved from that to what you're doing right now. Yeah, it's all part of the story. Your book, Hip Hop Family Tree, and of course, your love of X-Men is second only to, if it's even second, is parallel to your love of hip hop. Now, I don't know a great deal about hip hop, and this might be a really tough question to answer, just like, where do I start with John Burns, or rather, uh, Chris Claremont's X-Men? What do I pick up? If someone were 
getting interested into listening to hip hop music, where should they start? What would you recommend as a kind of sort of hip hop? You know, that's a good question because it's kind of impossible. I'm just not very good at making recommendations or, or anything. Like the reason I make these books is to kind of feature and showcase the things that I do like about these outside interests that I have other than comics, even though, of course, X-Men is a comic, but it's just a very convoluted one. I don't have a specific recommendation. Now, there are things that I like. Like, if you were to ask me about some of my favorite rappers or groups or whatever, you know, Public Enemy is number one in my book. But I don't know if that's what somebody should listen to. I never had debate class. Like, I can't convince you of anything. Uh, so if you gravitate to it, go ahead, man. But don't make it a chore. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's personal taste. I've dabbled a little bit and listened to hip-hop, or things close to it, I should even say, because I'm no expert, like Will Smith, Beastie Boys. The closest I've been to seeing someone live who does kind of a hip-hop sound is Beck. I saw him a couple of weeks ago outside of Philly, and that was a lot of fun. But um, have you seen any of your favorite uh, rappers live? I'm sure you have seen a lot. What was your favorite to see live? The Public Enemy shows here, here in Pittsburgh were always fun, man. Like, I have a personal rule that I would be phony to go to see any live performances of any bands or rappers or whatever that I like if I don't know every single word of every single album, man. So this idea would be true with like a lot of rappers and, you know, some punk rock music. And that's the spirit with which that I go see these things, man, because if I can't sing along with every song, I feel like a punk. <laughs> I'm just cut from that kind of cloth, man, where it's like you got to be super authentic. Or like, why would you give them your money if you're just there to like be a part of the scene or whatever if i could uh, sort of bring up the, the hip-hop family tree comic in relation to your question the mindset that i had going into making the comic it actually had very little to do with the music um obviously that is the kind of connective tissue to make the comic work or the spinal cord of the comic or, or whatever you want to call it but what was more interesting and what I'm trying to do with Hip Hop Family Tree is to showcase this idea of how a culture is created by way of word of mouth during a time period before the Internet where it had to be a situation where person A met person B and created situation C, which then led to D and E creating F. You see what I'm saying? Like, like that's what it's about. It's, it's about people coming together and everything that's required. Like if you read that Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers, consider that to be like the rubric used for, for making Hip Hop Family Tree because it was initiated in such a small area in the South Bronx. So everybody was connected. And then they did spread out and things happened to make hip hop and rap music a global phenomenon rather quickly when there were other forms of music like house music or like go-go music in Washington, D.C. that never had that kind of cultural impact. So that's what Hip Hop Family Tree is. Um, you know, if you're not down with rap music, don't fear the title because it's something different. Good recommendation then. Now I have questions that I ask all my guests. These are just fun questions. Nothing difficult. Just really to make you think. But it's all about you, really. It's about you as a creator, you as a person, just so people get to know you a little better. Yeah, sure. Now, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation when you're not at the drawing board? <laughs> this, no, nobody believes this until they are in my bubble. If I was to walk around this house with a camera, you will see that it's just a comic book making factory. Um, that's what I do. I'm working on four books right now. 
I work all the time. I deny myself a lot of social fun, quote unquote, because the, the work is fun. So what I'm saying is I work until exhaustion every day and then I go comatose in my bed. I might watch Netflix for a half an hour, but you know that old adage about all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy? That is a statement from somebody who has a job that they don't like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like what I'm doing. This shit is fun to me. Now, thinking back to a birthday that was special to you, that stands out in your mind, what was that birthday and why was it special? I'll answer it this way. Like, the coolest birthday I think I've ever had, believe it or not, was just a couple years ago, maybe maybe six years ago. And it was because of a present my, my own damn parents got me, my dad. Um, I was 30 years old, dude. He was simply just going to the bank to, you know, deposit some cash or whatever he was doing. And across the street from the bank was a yard sale. And he goes over to the yard sale and my pops has a lot of hustle in him. Like the area we come from, man, like hustle was built into you. And he saw that this house had a ton of comics and, you know, they wanted whatever they wanted for them. My dad was like, how long is this garage sale going on for? Oh, oh, only just like, you know, 15 more minutes. I'll give you uh, $20. It was something like 19 boxes of comics. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> he gives me a call and he says, hey, boy, I come over to the house. You know, it was my birthday. And he's like, come over to the house. I bought you a 19 boxes of comics and in my mind's eye i'm like 19 long boxes like where do you even put them in in your house and then where the heck am i going to put them in my house but when i got to his place it was like say maybe like five milk crates full and then five like other i remember one box was like a box for frozen taquitos uh <laughs> what i'm saying is this person had maybe a couple thousand comics but they were not a part of fandom, you know, like they didn't know about acid free bags and uh, long boxes and shit like that. Like they just liked comics, read comics and warehouse them however they felt best. And when you see that, that is really exciting and really because they potentially didn't know what they had. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like because they're just reading and, and collecting and they're not a part of like overstreet price guide type stuff. And I did like a live kind of unboxing using my social media, Facebook and Twitter. And so I would just like crack open these boxes and every single box had something amazing. You know, like there were comics from every every awesome collaboration in, in the history of mainstream comics. So there would be a couple Ditko Lee Spider-Mans, a couple Ramita Lee Spider-Mans. And I'm talking about like amazing Spider-Man, not you marvel tales mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying like the junkie issue of green lantern green arrow was in there a couple john byrne x-men and my pops loves those like pawn star shows and all that uh -huh. there was like a proviso on the gift man and he was just like listen man i spent this much on these comics so when you go through them let me know if i got a good deal like if there's a comic that paid for itself just in terms of like what i paid for they just let me know just out of curiosity and there were like at least 20, 30 comics that would be considered worth over 20 bucks or whatever. Um, so that so that was super fun, you know, and that was, and that was fairly recent, too. You know, like there wasn't like, you know, some sixth birthday where I got like a cool He-Man cake that was real special. It was like, you know, just a couple years ago. Wow. That's like Christmas Day. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was totally because it was 
completely unexpected. My fa- we just don't get down like that. You know what I mean? We're not sentimental people. So that probably even kind of like took a lot of effort from my pops to even like do that. It was pretty cool, man. Now, growing up when you were a teenager, what kind of posters or pictures did you have on the bedroom wall? I would draw on the bedroom wall. Um, <laughs> and Pittsburgh Magazine came to do a feature on me. And the writer wanted to see like the various houses that I lived in growing up. And when we went to the one house, we were the last people to live in there. So it's been dilapidated for about 18 years or something. I went to the writer and I'm like, dude, let's just break in. And we did. And we went up to my bedroom and there is drawings of like Deadpool on the wall, the new mutants logo, Calvin and Hobbes, like all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Me and my brother were approaching our teenage years and things like that. We were collecting Star Wars toys and Spawn figures and we would just kind of tack nails into, into our wall and just kind of hang up our Spawn toys and junk like that. The same time period, during the same time period, what kind of music were you listening to? I assume it was hip hop. And what did you listen to? Was it on a CD or a vinyl? Uh, never vinyl. Like I was a comics fan and, and that stuff takes up a lot of space. You can't have two collections that are right. so consuming of, of space. It, yeah, of course, it would, be, it would be rap music, man. That was, that was the stuff that I listened to in my earliest teens. But then I discovered punk rock. I still remember how I discovered the Ramones too, man. That was on the Learning Channel. There was a 10-part series about the history of rock and roll. The opening sequence for the program just showed a very... You know how at the beginning of Marvel movies, man, where it says like Marvel and it just shows the comics kind of flickering by? Yes. So it was like a rock and roll version of that where you're just seeing these like split-second images. And I just saw the Ramones for a split second and was like, what was that, man? So after I saw that and I discovered the Ramones, then that opened up all these pathways to punk rock and stuff like, you know, a Vans Warped Tour was brand new. So Epitaph Records and, and the West Coast punk rock stuff. There's, there's really never been anything as good as like that first Ramones record. Now, this next question is a hypothetical. You're stuck on a deserted island. What is the one book for pleasure, for reading for pleasure, that you would want to have with you? Okay, it'll be a toss up. Because there was the punk rock oral history called Please Kill Me by Legs McNeil, um, where he just collects all these interviews and puts them in a cohesive order to describe the birth of punk rock music. Either that or my publisher, Fanographics, for Hip Hop Family Tree, put together a similar book about the oral history of Fantagraphics. And it's, you know, 600 pages. You know, I've read through it once, but I always think about it. And if I had infinite time i could see that being enjoyable to read over and over again now we talked about action figures and if a toy company were to make an action figure of you what would be your accessory maybe some uh air force one sneakers or something (laughs) air force one sneakers a bucket hat some ray-ban sunglasses and like uh, um number two pencil okay (laughs) and when you're not at the drawing board what is your beverage of choice water always man Okay. Yeah, water always. Because it's such a sedentary gig. Mm. You know, you're just sitting around uh, all day. It's like maybe you don't drink your calories, man. I hear you. You don't drink a lot of coffee or anything? No, not at all. Like I like I will have tea every now and then, just like when I need like a little when I need my heart to surge. Mm-hmm. But uh just so much water. And final question. What is the one question that you have never been asked in an interview that you would like someone to ask you? Something about you that people don't know that you would like them to know. 
Uh, you know, there isn't one because very often in interviews, there is a situation where the opportunity is provided to put that kind of info out. Uh, but everybody's generally thorough enough. On the spot, I can't think of a thing. That's all right. That's cool. X-Men Grand Design, Second Genesis, that's coming out issue two, August 29th. And then you're going to have a collection, the Treasury Edition, in the fall, yes? Yep, uh, October. I think it comes out, if Halloween is on a Wednesday, it'll be out that Wednesday. Oh, all right. Yeah, I think it is like the last day of October, the book's supposed to come out. It's unfortunate because, I mean, it's fine, but the Dark Phoenix movie was supposed to come out a week or two later. And, you know, that material was covered in my book. So I'm like, oh, man, we're going to sell a ton. But they're doing some kind of reshoots that are going to push the movie back into 2019, same as the New Mutants movie. So I was just thinking, like, oh, man, we're going to cash in, but not quite. You think the Fox-Marvel deal, not for these movies, but do you think they'll have a very positive impact? I do. On the X-Men movies. Uh, I think they will. And and frankly, they should use uh, X-Men Grand Design as the template, man. <laughs> Amen. All right. <laughs> Do you have any con appearances planned for the rest of the year? Yeah, I'm going to pop up in uh, Baltimore. I've never been there, so that's going to be fun. Baltimore Comic Con uh, in September. But then I'm actually doing uh, a couple book festivals. I'm doing a national book festival in Washington, D.C. September. And also in September is the uh, the Brooklyn Book Festival. So I'll be popping up in those three uh, metropolises in September. But for the most part, I've halted my travels to just focus and finish X-Men. And I look forward to it. Ed, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks. Thanks again for having me on your show, man. All right, folks, and as promised, next week at last, Chris Flick of Capes and Babes, rounding out the month of August. If you like the interview with Ed and you like the show, please rate and review on iTunes. Even a star rating helps the show tremendously. You can follow me on at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook and Twitter. And check out my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics on Instagram. That's it for now. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.